A trial offers access to drugs and new treatments to patients before they're available in the market yet, before they're available for everyone else. So I think that, I think that is a big advantage. For instance, a drug approved in 2021, like today or tomorrow, was probably in trials back in 2015. So patients who were on that trial were able to get it on that trial where, while the drug may not have been available on the market yet, or maybe was approved for other cancers, but not the, you know, the specific cancer we're looking at. On this episode of the Women's Health Cast, I am joined by Dr. Elisabeth Paplamata to learn more about clinical trials. We talk about why researchers do trials, why people might choose to enroll in them, safety precautions in place for trial participants, and what she is doing to increase clinical trials available for patients at the UW Carbone Cancer Center. Dr. Paplamata is an assistant professor in the Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology in the UW School of Medicine and Public Health Department of Medicine. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's HealthCast. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Elisabeth Paplamata to the Women's HealthCast today to talk to me about clinical trials. Thank you for joining me. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. So I am very excited to learn a little bit more about kind of how clinical trials work in general and some um, more specific options, maybe not totally specific options, but a little bit more about uh, trials that are available at the UW Carbone Cancer Center here. Um, But before we get started with that, I'm curious about your day job and kind of what your professional responsibilities look like. Uh, Yeah, of course. Uh, First, a little bit of background on me. My name is Elisabeth Paplomara. I am a medical oncologist at the Carbone Cancer Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Personally, uh, working at the Carbone Cancer Center, I specialize in female cancers, uh, including breast cancer and gynecologic malignancies. And when we talk about gynecologic malignancies, uh, most commonly I see ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, and vulvar cancer if uh, they are advanced. So I don't, I'm a, as a medical oncologist, I don't do surgeries, um, but I specialize in chemotherapy or other systemic therapy administration. Um, like I said, this could be chemotherapy, it could be targeted therapies, it could be immunotherapy or endocrine therapy. And those drugs could be uh, given intravenously or taken by mouth. Um, In my practice, I do see patients in clinic. Um, About 50% of my time uh, is with patients in clinic. And the rest of the time, I conduct clinical trials. In addition to that, I teach medical students, I teach fellows and residents, either in the classroom or um, in the clinic. So it sounds like you are the perfect person to talk to me today a little bit about clinical trials um, at the UW and then kind of more generally. I guess to start with, I want to make sure that we've got a really good baseline of language. So what, um, I keep saying clinical trial, we're here to talk about that, but what what is a clinical trial? So in general terms, uh, a clinical trial is research performed in human participants who are then assigned to an intervention And the trial is designed to see is that intervention has an outcome and what effect it has on that person. 
so this is a general definition of a clinical trial. In the context of oncology and specifically medical oncology, a clinical trial is usually a research where we give patients a specific drug or a new combination of drugs uh, and we want to see if that drug is safe and if it works for the cancer. And uh, oncology trials, a, tri a trial in general could be performing healthy volunteers, for example, but our oncology trials are in uh, patients who have cancer. And a trial could focus on a specific cancer, like a breast cancer trial, or it could include multiple types uh, of cancer. And um, of course, if you would like, I can talk more about the, trial, the types of trials later. So you mentioned this a little bit, but I'm curious if you have a more expansive view about why trials are conducted, why this kind of research happens, and what kind of information we can gain by conducting these trials and kind of learning more about different treatments. Yes, of course. Like I mentioned, a trial is done to evaluate whether an intervention such as a new drug or new combination of drug works for a cancer. Uh, the purpose of the trial of trials overall is, of course, new science, but also many of our clinical trials want to um, show that a drug works and it is safe so that it can get approved by the FDA. And this way, all patients with cancer around the world can use that drug to treat their cancer. So that will be, you know, the ultimate goal of a big clinical trial. Of course, with trials, we get other information, such as the safety of drugs, um, side effects, and also biomarkers or lab laboratory tests or genetic testing or genomic testing that will help us identify patients who are more likely to respond to a drug or be resistant to a drug or will tell us will pa which patients uh, will do better with a specific intervention versus not. And there's different kinds of trials and trials may have different goals. For example, we have phase one trials. Phase one trials usually test a very new drug, sometimes first in human drug or a, a new drug combination in a small group of patients with cancer, usually a few dozen patients. Uh, the aim of these trials, phase one trials, is to judge the safety and side effects of the drug and to find the correct drug dose for future bigger trials. Um, these trials are usually open to multiple tumor types at the same time, uh, and they do involve a lot of laboratory work because they want to check the blood levels of the drug very often. So most uh, cancer drugs will start in the phase one setting, and then they move on to the phase two trial phase. Uh, phase two trials treat more uh, patients, usually dozens, maybe even hundreds, they focus on a specific tumor type, for example, ovarian cancer, and they also continue to study safety. However, the focus of a phase two trial is drug efficacy. So how well that does the drug work for the specific cancer to control the cancer and maybe shrink it or prevent the cancer from coming back? And then there's phase three trials. Phase three trials are usually much larger trials. They can include thousands of patients. They can go on for years. So they still gather information on safety and effectiveness of a, on a drug or combination of drugs. The main um, you know, goal of a phase three trial is registration. So showing that a drug works better than the standard of care we have and have them approve, uh, approved by the FDA. 
phase three trials are often randomized, which means uh, patients are assigned by chance to a group that may receive different treatments, what we call ARMS. Why do we do this? We do this so that we can actually compare the outcomes between the different arms and see which did better. Some trials may also include placebo, which means taking a fake drug like a saline infusion or a starch or a sugar pill instead of the experimental drug. And these trials may also be blinded, which means the patient and the doctor who's treating the patient in the clinic, they don't know if the patient is getting the drug or the placebo. Why, why do we do this? This process actually uh, partly removes bias and it helps us have a more objective assessment of what is going on and uh, that uh, you know includes safety and efficacy of the drug. If the uh, trial is open label, then it means that the patient knows what they're getting. In the end, patients are treated and then the researchers will compare the outcomes between the different arms and then see if the new drug is actually better than the standard of care or not. If it is better, then they will go to the FDA and the FDA will review the case and the safety and the efficacy, of course. And if the FDA approves the drug, then again, this drug is going to be available for all cancer patients. Finally, last but not least, we have basket trials, which is a relatively new concept. A basket trial involves a single drug or combination of drugs. However, that is studied across different cancers. For example, we lump together breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, which you would say these are different kinds of cancer. How do you treat them the same way? However, we want these cancers to have a specific common marker. Uh, and this is usually what we, f we find that marker by mutation analysis or genetic analysis. For example, BRCA positive uh, cancers of various origins treated with a specific drug. So these trials often use targeted drugs and not just traditional chemotherapy. Uh, so this is a more personalized approach. So as you can see, there's different kinds of clinical trials that may have different purpose, but essentially in cancer care, what we want is to discover uh, and find drugs which are effective to treat cancer and also um, ideally be safe and have the least side effects for the patients. I feel like we've learned then very much about why trials are conducted. And I'm kind of curious if you have insight into kind of the other like the other side of the trial not from the researcher side but from the participant side what motivates people to enroll in clinical trials sometimes mm -hmm. yeah so patients can decide to be in a trial for various reasons and maybe more than one first of all we're going into a trial both patients and physicians alike all, you know, hope that the, the drug that they are using, if it's a new drug or combination of drugs, is going to work and control the cancer, uh, especially for rare cancers or cancers when there's no good standard options. We are definitely hoping that the drug is going to control the cancer. Even in phase one trials, where I mentioned the main goal of the trial is safety and, and find the ideal dose, so not necessarily the benefit to the patient, still, if the drug is effective, and controls the cancer, the, the patient will usually stay on that drug for as long as it works. Additionally, a trial offers access to drugs and new treatments to patients before they're available in the market yet, before they're available for everyone else. So I think that, I think that is a big advantage. 
for instance, a drug approved in 2021, like today or tomorrow, who was probably in trials back in 2015. So patients who were on that trial were able to get it on that trial where while the drug may not have been available on the market yet, or maybe was approved for other cancers, but not the, you know, the specific cancer we're looking at. And since it often takes uh, years for a trial to accrue, treat patients, you know, then get results, write the papers, go to the FDA for approval, th this process can take years. It's very important for someone who's fighting cancer and maybe fighting for their lives to have access to a drug that may work. Uh, what I often tell patients is that standard chemotherapy is there. The insurance is going to pay for it anytime. It usually just takes a week to get approval and get scheduled in the chemotherapy room. Trials, though, open and close. Good trials are often open only for a limited amount of time, maybe a few months. And again, if we don't know if the trial, you know, drug is going to work, but if it works, it is an opportunity to have access to it. Uh, before it even goes to the FDA for approval. Uh, finally, uh, as you understand, almost all treatments we have today in cancer care who help people live longer and live better would not be possible without the generosity of patients who enroll in clinical trials. There's no way to overstate that. And many cancer patients enroll in clinical trials so they can help others. They can help researchers discover new cancer therapies and be part of scientific discovery and also help other patients with cancer and help future generations. Last but not least, the participation in the trial gives the patient control of their own care and gives them more options. Many patients really do prefer to be proactive with their treatment and have that option of clinical trial. Whenever I see a patient in the clinic, if I do have a trial for them, I lay down the options and it's, um, it's better to have multiple options for a patient as opposed to limited options for the cancer. You mentioned, you know, when you have trials available, you'll lay out the option if it, if it fits for somebody. I'm curious then how, in general, how do people learn about trials that are ongoing, whether they are good candidates or good fits to join a trial and then like start the process of enrolling if it's an option for them? Yeah, that's a great question. When I am in clinic, I always try to uh, think uh, do we have a trial for the specific patient I'm seeing? For example, of course, if I have a patient in clinic who is doing great, their cancer is controlled, there's no, there's no reason to, uh, you know, to change anything there. However, if, I, if I'm about to go in to see a patient uh, and the scan showed the cancer is growing, then in my mind, I think, okay, what are the options? There's the standard options, this chemotherapy A, B, C, do we have a trial for this patient? If we do a trial that would be appropriate for this patient, I will go in and give them the option of um, enrolling in a trial as opposed to doing uh, the standard chemotherapy. And like I mentioned, I also explained the benefit that the trial may be using a drug that could be effective and it's not on the market yet, so that uh, could be a benefit. Sometimes we also get referrals from outside physicians in the state or neighboring states. We are uh, happy to see patients that uh, outside physicians uh, think uh, are eligible or, um, for clinical trials, or if patients are interested in clinical trials, we're happy to see them as a second opinion 
to consider them for their trials. Sometimes patients find us online and they reach out to us by email. They usually uh, reach the clinical trials team and then the clinical trials team reach out to us and uh, we make a, uh, an appointment. Uh, there are great uh, resources online, I have to add. The uh, University of Wisconsin has a great uh, website. Specifically, there's a website, it's clinicaltrials.uwhealth.org and, can, uh, and edu. In the clinicaltrials.uwhealth.org website, there's actually an option to put in information like type of cancer, gender, whether it's adult or childhood malignancy, etc. And then there's a search option so you can find trials at UW. And there is an option to contact the clinical trials team and so they can get a message to um, call the patient, get some more information and see we have a trial for them. Uh, But what happens if there is a trial for a patient. I'm sitting across a patient and there is a trial I thought I thought it is appropriate for them and they're interested. Then I will explain the trial in detail. Uh, we'll, you know, about the drugs involved, the schedule, the pros and the cons of the trial, potential benefits, potential side effects uh, of the drugs involved. I will answer, of course, any questions. We will go over the schedule of events, like how many visits, how often, how, ma- how often do we do blood work, how often do we do scans. If the patient agrees to participate, they will sign an informed consent form, and then we start the screening process. The screening process means that we have to do possibly additional blood work or tests like EKGs or x-rays or CAT scans to make sure we check all the boxes. And why do we have those boxes and what do these boxes serve? One, we have to have the, the correct type of cancer, the correct stage of cancer, make sure the patient is strong enough to get into a clinical trial, make sure the kidney function, the liver function is normal, that is important for clinical trials, make sure the patient doesn't have any medical conditions or takes medications that will make it dangerous to go into a clinical trial. If everything look, looks good, then we, si- then we sign off and we say the patient is eligible, and then we set up the first visit, and we start the treatment, and like I said, we follow a specific, we follow a specific protocol. So it's outlined in a specific trial what the events are, and when we do blood work, and when we see the patients, and um, how to manage toxicities. So one of the benefits of clinical trials could be that the patient may be seen more often and more vigorously. Uh, depending on the trial, of course, we may be doing scans every two or three months and uh, the patient might get the drug as long as it's working or for a specific period of time. So that kind of goes into details for a specific trial. It sounds like there's a lot, if, if someone enrolls in a trial, there's a lot of care involved with like um, maybe coming in more frequently than they would if they were receiving a different type of care, um, different drugs. What this might not be blanket all the time. Does this have a cost? Like, how do how, do patients, does insurance cover this? Do patients pay for this in, in general? I know it's probably different from trial to trial, but I'm curious how that works. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And like you said, it depends from trial to trial. Some patients will have minimal intervention uh, extra compared to standard of care. Some, some trials will have multiple blood draws, multiple extra visits. And it kind of depends. Phase one trials might be the more intensive 
and requires require extra blood draws because then we, they they often want to check the levels of the drug in the blood so they have multiple blood draws in multiple time points again depends on a trial and then as we go to phase three trial it's more like closer to standard of care maybe even scans are done a standard of care so it depends on the trial what I, I what, and this is a great question and patients always should ask that question and maybe call their insurance before they go on the trial but the standard is that insurance will cover anything which is standard like a blood draw it's just a regular blood draw a cbc a chemistry a doctor visit a CAT scan that's done every three months would would be have been done anyway. So insurance, all the standard drugs used, like for example, anti-nausea medications. So insurance will cover all the standard expenses that would have been done anyway outside of a clinical trial. The trial really covers anything which is extra and experimental and we would not do normally. So even an EKG, which we don't do for every patient who starts chemo, that the trial will pay for. In some cases, uh, yes, they may be extra expensive, but neither the trial or the insurance covers. For example, parking, travel, hotel rooms, if someone is traveling from far away. Some trials do have, uh, you know, uh, do give patients reimbursement for travel and parking, but not all trials do that. So that is something to ask. So that might be some extra cost for the patient. You mentioned travel, and that is also a question I had. Um, so here in Madison, we're, we're part of UW-Madison, we're part of um, like a big academic medical center. So I kind of get the impression or have the feeling that um, there are maybe more research opportunities or opportunities to participate in research here because we're part of this big academic medical center that might not be the case if someone lived in a smaller community or was a little bit further away. Um, if someone, I guess, do people travel to be part of trials? Um, if someone lives in a, a community that's a little bit further away but finds that they're a good candidate for a trial, can they be part of a trial even if they live, you know, don't live in the community where it's being conducted necessarily? I guess, tell, can you tell me about how that works? Yeah, I mean, clinical trials are not available everywhere. I mean, most, you know, commonly clinical trials are available in academic institutions like uh, the University of Wisconsin, like Emory University, where I came from. And uh, there are several big organized practices that could have the capacity and resources to offer clinical trials. But, you know, small community practices will not be able to do that. It takes a lot of uh, personnel and resources uh, and organization to run clinical trials. But yes, it's completely acceptable to travel for clinical trials if that is possible. Here, we are happy to see patients from all over the state or neighboring state. In, in Atlanta, I used to see patients from all over Georgia or Alabama or even Florida uh, who would, you know, who would come for a clinical trial. So traveling is perfectly Fine. Patients, of course, fly all over the U.S. to go to MD Anderson and Sloan Kettering, for example. Perf traveling is perfectly uh, fine for most trials. Some trials will require intensive lab work, so that will require not just the travel, but also the hotel expenses. But um, in general, we, uh, we definitely welcome patients to, um, to travel. And I always encourage patients, if they are really interested in a clinical trial that we don't have to look at either neighboring institutions or even far right there is a website called clinicaltrials.gov 
where pretty much every trial on the planet is registered. So, you know, again, like, you know, you put in a cancer type and it gives you all the trials run and you might be able to find a trial in the United States. Maybe have a family member there you can stay with and that, you know, that helps things and um, uh, many patients uh, do that. Uh, but traveling is perfectly um, fine. And we do welcome patients from far if they're willing to travel here for trials. I have kind of one more question about um, the patient experience, something that I feel like would pop into a lot of heads as they were learning about trials, trying to decide if it's a good fit. Um, and that is, is participating in a trial safe or and or what kinds of like protections or precautions are available for people who might be part of a trial group? Yeah, that is an excellent question. Of course, we always try to minimize risk in clinical trials, and the principle we always want the benefit to outweigh the risks. However, when a trial involves intervention, specifically cancer therapy, such as a new medication or a chemotherapy, there are potential side effects associated with it. Sometimes those side effects can be serious and life-threatening. Sometimes a drug is so new that we're not even fully uh, sure of what to expect. And we're still learning what the side effects are by giving it to patients. So there is definitely a risk. The other risk is that the new drug might not work. And it may not be better than standard treatment or not work at all. And, you know, like I mentioned, there's, always, there's also blinded placebo-controlled trials. So the patient might be on the trial and go through all the travel and extra blood work and maybe in the control uh, group. So not really getting the experimental therapy, just getting the standard therapy. And like we said, a clinical trial may be an inconvenience, like multiple appointments and extra blood draws and you know also questionnaires. Very often uh, trials uh, have questionnaires for quality of life because we want to make sure the quality of life of the patient is preserved while we're doing this. Uh, so that may be an inconvenience. And we talked about the cost uh, here. So there are risks. But of course, we always want the benefit to outweigh the risks of a trial. And there are several safeguards in place to protect trial participants. Uh, for example, researchers like myself and also all my colleagues who participate in the clinical trial process are required to undergo specific training. And you have to renew that every few years. Uh, you have to follow strict rules to ensure the safety of the participant. Uh, and these rules are enforced by the federal government. Every trial will follow specifically very carefully drafted study plan that we call the protocol. And that describes which patients are appropriate for a trial and which schema the researcher will follow and how you know often you do blood work, how often you do scans, when you should be doing additional tests, when to do scans and how to manage side effects of the trial. The principal investigator or head investigator in the specific institution is responsible to make sure the protocol is followed, that all the staff working on the trial is trained and qualified. And there's also study monitors who are above all the institutions and monitor a study either in the America or the entire world. And if we have a question and something is not clear, then we reach out to the monitor and we ask for uh, help. Uh, or clarification of what to do. In addition, of course, we have IRBs or institutional review boards 
which are essentially committees that have to approve every clinical trial in the United States. These IRB committees are comprised of doctors, scientists, and also lay people who are dedicated to make sure the trials participants are not exposed to unnecessary risks. So there will, will be some risks, but we don't want to take unnecessary risks. Uh, the members will review the study when it opens to make sure the study protocol is reasonable. And also the IRB reviews the study periodically to make sure there's no extra risks or potential harm to the participants. And we wanna make sure the harm is as low as possible, such as you know side effects such as nausea and diarrhea may be expected with some of these therapies, but not life-threatening side effects. Uh, in addition, there's the data safety monitoring committees, which also comprise of experts, most of the time physicians, and they periodically look at the results of the trial to see if the trial works. And if they think that the trial is not working, um, then they will ask the the uh, the coordinator of the trial, the sponsor, to stop the trial right away because at that point, all oh, the benefit does you know is is less than the risk, so they will stop the trial. Uh, finally, the informed consent that the patient signs at the beginning of the trial is a consent to participate, but it's not a binding contract. Participation is voluntary and the patient can stop being in the trial anytime. No questions asked. The patient can withdraw consent anytime and leave the trial anytime. And they will still, of course, uh, they will not have repercussions and will still get care with their physician. So these are several of the safeguards we have trying to keep participants safe. Um, you mentioned protocols and I wanted to, it, it just made me think of something that I feels like comforting to me, I guess, um, when I think about trials, which is like, often they're, they're, they're very big and they can be like a national trial that has lots of sites, especially if it's something for like a rarer condition where, you know, if you just had the one small trial in one area, you would never bring enough people in to really learn enough. So I think having that, knowing that like the, the protocol, the steps, the way that the trial is executed is really standardized and has been really, really well planned and well thought out. Um, and that it's an experiment we're learning, but it, but not in like a willy nilly way at all. It's extremely methodical and it's extremely thoughtful. Um, I find that very comforting to know, I guess. No, you're, you're right. Not only there's a protocol and protocols are usually like a hundred, hundreds of pages long, but also of course there's a monitoring team. So it's not just us here, like at, U, at UW, for example, I'm in clinic, of course, I see patients actually, but there's the whole, a whole research office or especially, or essentially people, that is what they do all day. They only do clinical trials. And if I have a question, if I have a concern, if there's something, they're always there to look it up. And there's, of course, the monitoring team, like I said, which is above all of us. And what they have, what they do is their job is to supervise and give guidance uh, for the trial. And they're, uh, they're available anytime by email or by phone. So if there's any concern, we reach out to them and they give us clarifications or guidance. And we usually, you know, we, we always err to the side of caution. If there is some kind of concern or a quest or, um, you know, or a question, we're going to be cautious or maybe hold the drug or ask for a consultant, or we always want to be cautious and conservative. Uh, and uh, of course, the safety of the participant is uh, the number one priority. 
So you joined us here in February of 2020, so a little over a year ago. Um, and I know part of why our department was so excited to welcome you was um, we to expand kind of the platform of oncology clinical trials. Um, you tell me a little bit about the work that you've done in that arena since you've joined us here and kind of what you're hoping to accomplish with expanded um, expanded clinical trial opportunities. Uh, yeah, great. Thank you for that question. I did join February 2020. Of course, that was right before COVID. I think within two weeks, we had a shutdown. So 2020 was not a great year for clinical trials in anything else other than COVID because one of the lockdown, we closed even the clinical trials we had for a long time. All funding and resources were diverted to COVID. And we are now going back to normal and, you know, opening trials and enrolling patients and kind of, you know, going alive again. But it has been a hard year and probably things move much slow, uh, more slowly than they would have otherwise. Uh, you know, UW was already a leader in clinical trial development and participation nationally. And um, uh, I joined the Gynecological Oncology Division, who, al who already has excellent and nationally recognized clinicians and investigator, investigators. But since I'm not a surgeon and I'm a medical oncologist, I came to be a liaison between the Medical Oncology Division and Gynecological Oncology. Uh, um, I am a head investigator right now in several phase two or three trials uh, that involve gynecologic cancers exclusively, but I also am uh, working with the phase one group and the basket group. So I'm the liaison between gynecological oncology and the early phase trials like phase one and the basket group trial, which like I mentioned, are more precision medicine and personalized trials. So this is my uh, role to create a bridge between gynecological oncology and the entire um, phase one basket room and medical oncology uh, trial group. We already have about 10, 15 trials open. Uh, and of course, trials change. I don't want to give many details. Change all the time. Every few months, a trial might close because all they, they have gotten all the patients they needed. And then a new trial will open. Uh, so at any point, we probably have about 10 to 15 trials which are open. Ideally, if you ask me, I would want a clinical trial for every single patient I see in clinic, whether that's before surgery, after surgery, metastatic cancer. But of course, that's not always possible because of the logistics, the resources, and the um, tr clinical trial, the way they're set up, they usually have strict criteria of which patients to enroll. So it's kind of hard to generalize trials to all patients we see in clinic, but ideally we want to have trials for most, if not, not all of our patients. We want trial for some of our more aggressive cancers like platinum resistant ovarian cancers. We want trials for some of our com most common cancers, such as uterine cancers. And also we want trials for some rare cancers. And I think already we kind of have a small coverage on that. For example, we do have a, a two clinical trials actually with immunotherapy combina in combination with chemotherapy in patients with uterine cancer. Uh, I am actually the head investigator of a trial uh, in uh, patients who have stage one or two uterine cancer who have a DNA repair defect called microsatellite instability. So these patients get immunotherapy, which is um, effective in these kinds of tumors. We do have several studies for platinum resistant ovarian cancer, which is a more aggressive 
type which has become resistant to, to some of our best therapies. I do have a trial um, which is led by the NCI, which combines peposertib, a new drug, with, chemo, with standard chemotherapy. So patients will get both drugs uh, together. And also, I'm a lead investigator in uh, a study, in a basket study of tucatinib, which is a small molecule against HER2. And that includes multiple tumor types, but uh, it also includes cervical and uterine cancer. So we already have a good trial portfolio, but of course we always want more and we want trials to fit the patients that we see in clinic and we serve in clinic. In addition, uh, one, of the, one of my goals is to be a liaison between um, the clinic and the lab. Uh, we do have excellent laboratory scientists and investigators here at uh, UW, and uh, they can discover new drugs that work in cancer cells. But, you know, there has to be a bridge. We have to bring these drugs to the clinic to actually, you know, try in patients. So this is what we call bench to bedside and translational research. So ideally, uh, we want to expand this part of our research. Another one is of my focuses is precision medicine or personalized medicine. I work very closely with the precision medicine department here at UW, where we do molecular testing in tumors and then make specific recommendations for clinical trials or off-label drugs that may be appropriate based on mutations that we find in cancers. So again, it's, you know, 2020 was a hard year, but we're kind of go, you know, getting uh, back to our fast pace uh, soon, and we're hoping to open new trials and exciting trials soon. If someone wanted to learn more about trial opportunities that are available at UW in particular, um, where could they find this kind of information? Yeah, so that's um, that's a great question. We do have a referral line. It is 608-262-5223. And then we have a great website, uh, clinicaltrials.uwhealth.org and cancer.wisc.edu. These are both excellent resources to see what trials we have available and maybe even request a consultation, a phone call from the clinical research team. We are accepting second uh, opinions or referrals. We are open to doing telemedicine for patients who do not wish to travel. We are limited to the state of Wisconsin right now because of the you know, requirements for telemedicine. But um, we are willing to do in-person or video visits for patients who are interested in clinical trials. And if any uh, oncologists uh, hear uh, this, uh, if they have patients who are interested, we are happy to see them. And um, even if we don't have something right now, we might have a trial open in six months. So uh, definitely being a patient in the UW system and having an established relationship helps even if right now is not the time to get in a clinical trial. So uh, please um, feel free to uh, call or visit clinicaltrials.uwhealth.org. Dr. Peplamad, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Women's Health Cast. This was a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. And I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope to talk to you again soon. 
If you'd like to learn more about clinical trials at the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center or available clinical trials in the United States, links to the clinical trial databases that Dr. Paplamata mentioned are in our show notes for this episode. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.